This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today marks the beginning of the annual Comparative and International Education Societies Conference. I'd like to wish all conference goers an enjoyable and productive week. I'll be there and hope to meet many of our listeners. The Globalization and Education SIG is hosting a happy hour today, Monday, March 7th, at the Yale Saloon. Hope to see you there. On today's show, I speak with Susan Robertson about regionalism. Although Susan can't join the conference this year, she was able to speak with me a few days ago about her newest co-edited volume entitled Global Regionalisms and Higher Education, Projects, Processes, and Politics. The volume looks at and theorizes regional bodies around the world, specifically looking at the work of regional bodies on higher education. In our conversation, Susan explained the history of regions, their connection to particular political agendas of liberalization, and their work in higher education. Susan Robertson is a professor of sociology of education in the Graduate School of Education at the University of Bristol. She is also co-editor of the journal Globalization, Societies, and Education. Susan Robertson, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks very much, Will. Wonderful to be here. You have spent uh, over a decade or so thinking and working inside the European Union space, uh, specifically within the area of higher education. Your, n- your newest co-edited book is entitled Global Regionalisms and Higher Education, Projects, Processes, and Politics. And you look at regionalism uh, across the globe, basically, and you have authors from across the globe contributing to the volume. To start the conversation, I think we should try and define some of the terms that we'll be using in our conversation. So specifically, what is a region and what is regionalism? Well, that's um, a good place to start, I think. Um, Actually, if you dive into the literature, you do find yourself facing a bit of a headache with a proliferation of terms, regions, regionalisms, um, regionalization, hybrid, and on it goes. But we could probably, as uh, in starting out, kind of think about a region, uh, a region as some kind of formal or informal set of arrangements uh, that it might take the form of, you know, economic arrangements as we see with the the EU. Um, They may well be cultural, so you could think at one level of the Bologna process that we could talk a little bit more about um, that links together higher education institutions around uh, some common um, qualifications frameworks. Uh, But essentially what we're talking about here is something, the, the, the moment of identity. So we say uh, well, this is the EU, or we say, um, well, this is the ASEAN uh, region, which uh, it was kind of formally launched uh, in its latest iteration um, in the Asian region at the end of last year. So uh, when we talk about a region, we're thinking more or less about identity, something that we can um, point to. Um, and, and actually a region for itself is likely to uh, be able to say, you know, we are the EU. And it typically is also doing a lot of identity kind of work here. 
Now, if we go to regionalisms, typically what writers are talking about are the, the mechanisms, the structures, the processes, the arrangements, and there are lots and lots of them. They may be political, economic, perhaps cultural. Um, in more complex regionalisms, we see lots of these di different mechanisms. Um, perhaps institutions that uh, may be, uh, if we took the EU as an example, um, they're quite formal institutions, they've got uh, a parliament here, uh, legal um, structures, so you can take cases. Um, but that's not always the case and you could perhaps go to into some of the Latin American spaces or Africa and we may not see the complexity of those structures and processes and arrangements and so on. There's a, another word we sometimes find that we encounter, which is regionalization. And, maybe, and, and, and again, really, if I look at what they're trying to describe, here what they're really identifying are the kind of tangible manifestations. You know, students moving over borders, trade uh, that can, or people that uh, can move around a, a common space. If we thought of, you know, we get to an airport and we see that there's a, a line that says, APEC members, you, you can go down this track. That's a very good example of uh, the visible manifestation. So the rest of us are all waiting to enter through the visitors or the, um, the, the those lines that are talking about who are permanent residents. But in this case, there's a visible identification of a track that certain um, individuals in this case can move through. But that comes out of... Um, arrangements that enable these processes to take place. It sounds like the, a region is comprised of mainly nation states in a certain grouping. Um, are there other actors that constitute regions? Well, I, I would say that um, what's happened to our understanding of regions is uh, quite early on it was in perhaps the post-war period typically we did say well it's nation states and maybe that was reasonably accurate because um, what we hadn't seen at that particular point, we saw what's often described as much more endogenous, so a region making itself typically out of maybe member states ceding um, some of their sovereignty, you know, the, the and this is nation-state sovereignty, by the way, to enable them to work in um, a collaboration or forms of cooperation around perhaps trade, um, political forms of organisation and so on. Um, but what we've seen since the 1990s, where we've seen neoliberalism as a, a set of ideas that says, well, let's get rid of some of these barriers and, and so on, um, that uh, limit the way in which we organise ourselves. And uh, we often talk about this as a shift from government to governance. So government was, in this case, nation states um, doing the negotiating, um, giving up some of the nation state sovereignty to enable trade or movement of people, collaborations and so on. But with this shift to governance, in other words, we're, we're, we're many more actors engaged in the activity of uh, governing then what we see are uh, a, a proliferation of different kinds of actors. So I could give you an example of uh, the higher education sector. There are uh, many actors, and actually not necessarily 
in all cases, governments. In some cases, they might be universities that are more explicitly engaged in um, brokering or, or making sure that their, their universities can be part of the uh, European higher education area. In other cases, for example, it was France that quite explicitly um, launched uh, a proposal. Um, and this is quite extraordinary because France is very protective of its uh, nation-state sovereignty. But it launched uh, a, a call, really, to develop the European higher education area. Um, and there are often quite diverse and different uh, interests at work here, um, which might be to do with changing things in your nation-state space because you feel that you need to um, generate competition and so on. So I think it's generally more accurate now to, I'm sure in the post-war period there were always more actors than the nation-states, you know, corporations, councils of um, industrialists and so on. But it would be fair to say I think that in the period from the 1990s onwards there, there's been a rapid expansion of uh, many, many more actors. Again, if we take the Bologna process, um, the University of Macquarie is... Uh, at one level, we could see them as an actor in the European higher education area, Bologna process. It badges itself as Bologna compliant. Um, and so this is a university in Australia that in some way is now constituting or maintains, if we want to use that word, or, or, or contributes to keeping the Bologna process at work, which is um, a, a mechanism, it's a regional mechanism at work. So you're saying that there there have been uh, since the 1990s more actors that are involved in uh, processes of regionalism or or mechanisms and institutions of regionalism. Has this coincided with more regions being formed in the world? I well, I think the common point here is definitely from the 1990s onwards, uh, there was an explosion again of regionalisms. There was uh, perhaps the, we often talk about first and second wave wave regionalisms. So the post World War Two period, you know, Southeast Asia, Africa, Latin America, um, there was that first round of regionalisms, and in part, perhaps in that first period, it was. Uh, developing mechanisms for cooperation to, you know, in many cases, recover after the um, Second World War. The second wave of regionalisms, 1990s, um, most of us would agree that really what, what that reflects is uh, a means of countering uh, global processes. So neoliberalism, which is a, a, a political project that actually argues that we should... Um, you know, take away some of the pr protections, you know, uh, remove, for example, some of the regulations around foreign direct investment, people moving, uh, finances moving and so on. So uh, that was that broad political project around liberalising, privatising and so on. Um, that Those global processes um, create all kinds of problems potentially for nation states because if you're inward looking and on your own, then in a global world, then the view is often it's better to be in a regional organisation with others to manage these global processes. So these two things work together. They're often 
the, the two sides of the same coin. We have global processes looking for liberalisation and then regionalising processes that tend to try and limit the consequences of kind of being exposed to these, these big uh, social forces. So that is the case then that we saw uh, many, many more uh, forms of regionalisms. And um, I think that what also then happens too is once you have a region like the EU, it often is looking to broker because it finds itself as an actor on the world stage. The EU has been quite active in looking out to the Asian region and trying to create uh, a reflection of itself in, for example, the Asian region or down in the Latin American space. So what begins as uh, a dynamic uh, generates even further dynamics because of the way in which these uh, regional um, actors themselves begin to act as what we could call a region for itself. And it often sees itself recognised in other formations, uh, regional formations in other parts of the world where it will typically set up uh, meetings, uh, share um, practices, instruments and so on um, that enable it to almost act in a kind of a state-like way even though we might not recognize them as formal nation-states. And, and this comes to the idea of inter-regionalism where there's these... So can you explain what this idea is? How, how did this happen or, or what is inter-regionalism? So interregionalism is essentially where we're, we're looking at, for example, um, the, uh, the European Union, the EU, and it, ha it might um, you know, look out into uh, the Asian space and, uh, and let's be very clear, the EU, though it talks a lot about wanting to cooperate in the world when it's been looking out into the Asian space, particularly from the 1990s onwards. It is also very mindful of the fact that it's interested in trade. It wants to um, be much more visible in the Asian imaginary there, um, you know, Asia back into Europe. Nation states like China um, in the Asian region would be on the radar of the the. Uh, EU. Um, so we can see actually from the 1990s uh, the EU has also looked out across the Atlantic, looked at the way in which America had been as part of the NAFTA arrangements but also other uh, region building projects like um, APEC. Um, it's tried to develop uh, an, I these interregional projects that allow it to, you know, sh pr promote its interests in another region. Um, and the reverse is the case with 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 ASEAN. It's trying to uh, think about and limit U.S. power in the Asian region. So developing these alliances uh, into the European space. So what I've been describing, I think, quite clearly, is the way in which politics, but, you know, perhaps through forms of what we might call soft power. So it's, we're not getting our armies out and, you know, you know, installing them along boundaries and so on. We're using um, often mechanisms like interregionalisms. And perhaps this is where higher education becomes quite important. I mean, who can be against, you know, collaborations around higher education? sharing, understandings of the world, curriculum, collaborations between universities and so on. So though there's, I think, real important and power 
powerful politics at work here. Uh, the mechanisms that are often used to broker these interregionalisms um, are mechanisms that uh, en enable the oiling of the wheels, if we could uh, talk about it that way, of these interregional projects. So ASEAN, the EU, LA, or Latin America. Now, there's not such a thing called uh, a Latin American um, region um, that's specific and identifiable. Uh, CARICOM is uh, one, um, but... That's, that, that's the Caribbean that is indeed. Uh, region. But what you might find with the Latin American end of EU, LA, Latin, which is a collaboration that we can see, is that several uh, kinds of Latin Americans, Mercosur, um, CARICOM, all of those different regional agreements, UNICER is another one, um, and there's a proliferation. If you go and look, you begin to see that though we often talk about regions in uh, just a few examples, I mean, if you look, there are very, very many uh, different um, kinds of uh, regional collaborations, often with, you know, let's say Venezuela is a member of four or five of them, and you begin to wonder how these all might work, but these are nation-states kind of popping up in different regional organisations just to make sure their nation-state interests are protected there um, as it's working now up at a different scale of governing. So... Turning to higher education, um, how or why, I guess, is the question, why are regional bodies and regionalism concerned with education? As you said, it's who wouldn't be against having more connections between students uh, across nation-state borders. But is there another sort of agenda that these regional bodies have in mind? I think indeed there is. Um... Often the proposers of the European higher education area, which is the EU manifestation of uh, this, um, or and the European research area, both of those at the, in, in Europe, um, though they will talk always that this are, these are mechanisms of cooperation and so on. There's a much more serious agenda here. That agenda is uh, quite explicitly about uh, developing the basis for a, a, being a competitive nation and region and increasingly as education itself has been regarded as powering the economy and particularly higher education, you know, ideas, uh, innovation that might lead to, for example, uh, breakthroughs in um, engineering, bio, um, um, developments, uh, pharmaceutical developments um, and so on. Universities are seen to be potentially the powerhouses of uh, ideas, of human capital or people, people, um, but working um, now not just in, at the level of, um, you know, bodies doing, you know, manufacturing and so on, but heads doing some of the ideas work uh, that is, is crucially important for uh, being a competitive country and a competitive uh, region um, in the world. So the question is, why would you regionalise? Why can't nation states do it by themselves? Now, that's, let's come back to the French example that we talked about. Um, universities have often seen themselves as 
not necessarily only or explicitly involved in developing um, ideas and people and skills for the economy. You know, it's been very important to the history of universities, such as languages, humanities, um, the arts, and all of those areas have been very important for um, a society um, thinking about and reflecting upon itself. So there's a, a tension in the academy about the instrumentalising of knowledge for the economy. Um, in France, this has meant that uh, universities, uh, much of the research effort, for example, in France, has been located in specialised research centres. Universities have been separate from these specialised research centres. Um, and academics in France are very resistant. Now, what a region does is it becomes potentially a different scale at which you can advance now a political project to you know, open up economies uh, and use the academy, the university, to be much more explicitly involved in economic development. By regionalising, or we might call this rescaling, like moving up one level the, uh, the political project so you can begin to advance it at that level, that then creates a, a new agenda at that level that then requires those countries, those institutions in those countries, to now um, begin to come into line. So this is about the way in which politics itself um, so, so uh, higher education now lining up or being lined up to be part of the armory for developing competitive knowledge economies, um, the knowledge in those universities being regarded as important, um, making sure that the conditions or the agenda or the rules of the game are now not controlled by academics in the academy, but actually being set at a different level and then those below that level um, then coming into line. So these higher education institutions around the world are all trying to become world-class universities competing on that level rather than thinking of their own locale. The, uh, well I think there's um, other multiple games here that are being played, but certainly a, you know, a, a proxy of being um, a, a competitive economy is having a so-called world-class university. So, for example, you'll see selective funding to uh, uh, specific institutions. We could take Taiwan as an example. I think perhaps the top eight universities were given extra money in Taiwan to make sure that they screened up the uh, world-class universities ranking list. Um, China the same. China's been investing very heavily in um, the top-flight universities to make sure that they can enter into the top, you know, 50, 100 and so on. And what's happening globally is countries are using these as proxies of a knowledge economy. Because actually, in truth, what it's if we really began to examine what's a knowledge-based economy, well, we would always say, well, perhaps we, we've always had a knowledge-based economy. Um, but there are in newspapers that are selling these global rankings, so they've got a vested interest in you know, using this proxy of a knowledge-based economy because it sells newspapers. Um, countries who don't want to feel as if they are you know, falling out of um, the ranks of the important countries, you know, see it as important that they've got a certain number of, uh, of their institutions up in the highest of ranks. 
universities use uh, these um, rankings themselves to attract uh, students into their universities, you know, when they advertise themselves and so on, as being, or a city like Melbourne will say, um, you know, we are a knowledge-rich city, and then they'll look at all the universities that are ranking quite highly, add up, uh, or, or develop their own measures, and then use this to advertise their cities. So there's perhaps a lot of different dynamics at work that are keeping all of these things, you know, um, um, operating and keeping operating um, these new regional projects. And, and it sounds like the agenda that's being set is, is being set by many actors, not just some central actor within one region. By many actors, indeed, you're right, Will. Um, and that's what gives it its power. Just imagine that it's one actor kind of pushing a big stone along. Um, but if we had many shoulders to the wheels with quite different interests at work, um, there's suddenly now much more energy behind this thing. Um, different interests, they might be there for quite different reasons. Some because they have a very strong vested interest, some because they don't want to be left out. Uh, perhaps we can see that, for example, Japan gets involved in um, a, a range of quite interesting bilateral arrangements in this case. But in this case, it, it, it wants to be in these bilateral arrangements, but it doesn't want to be in these bilateral arrangements in ways that actually send it too far off its national agenda. Um, if we went to the Asian region, um, countries like Singapore and, and Malaysia, they are very wary of how much would go up into the region because what they are, certainly Malaysia, is very aware that at the bottom line, social cohesion is important. So it'll, it'll get involved in the regional activity, but not at the expense of ensuring that some of the activity that it believes is very important at the nation-state space uh, remains intact or some of that agenda. Uh, so Asian regionalism, Southeast Asian regionalism has taken some time to kind of get some energy behind it, in part because countries like Singapore said, well, you know, it took too long to become an, an autonomous nation state um, and it invests a lot of energy in, um, and effort in ensuring Singapore as a nation state project kind of has um, the elements there that keep it um, moving along. So seeding too much up that would undermine that. So you can see different actors might be wanting to push some things forward and other actors are there because they want to limit what gets moved forward. And that would include how much of uh, how much autonomy they might have over their higher education institutions. Um, they're there for com potentially completely opposite reasons reasons. We went to Thailand and one of my own doctoral students is, is researching Thailand at the moment. Um, Thailand is trying to uh, use ASEAN regionalisms in order to uh, increase levels of cooperation but particularly levels of English and potentially to modernise its higher education institutions but only the top flight. Um, institutions. So not all universities in Thailand um, will be put under pressure to engage in mobility, quality, bring in quality assurance mechanisms and so on. But the top flight ones, yes, because that's how they see that they could modernise Thailand to bring it into being a competitive knowledge economy at the nation-state space. So let's turn to some of the chapters in your book, the different, um, in a sense, case studies of these different regions. 
how are some of the authors that are are included in your in your volume theorizing and conceptualizing regionalism? The um, well, I'm very proud of this book, um, and actually, I'm probably doing a little bit of advertising here, but uh, it is the case. It's the first book that uh, on higher education regionalisms that is explicitly engaging with. Uh, just describing, let's say, higher education as a regional project for itself, but actually um, in quite explicit and deep conversation with some of the different theories of regionalisms that are out there. And so not all chapters are the same, they're not reading off the same hymn sheet uh, here. Um, so we could take, for example, the chapter by Susanna Mello, and uh, this is a lovely piece, comes out of um, some fabulous um, um, empirical doctoral work that she does on looking at uh, Europe and some of the institutions that have helped develop uh, Europe as a region. Um, she's drawing quite explicitly on uh, one of the big, big kind of writers on uh, regions and regionisms, um, Bjorn Hetne, who um, has uh, developed the idea of regionness. Um, and the idea of actorness, that the, the, the region itself kind of acts in and for itself. So it's not just a kind of passive space that we might say, well, there's activity that's taking place in this space, but actually where we see this arrangement, this identity, then acts, um, and so here we call this, or she calls this, actorliness, um, it acts quite explicitly in and for itself and brokering projects and so on. Um, it's a, it's, a, it's a, 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 a lovely chapter and she does that uh, beautifully. Perhaps if we went to um, work looking at um, regions as socially constituted through ideas and institutions, social norms and so on, Maybe the chapter by um, Jean-Emile Charlier and um, colleagues, here what they're looking at is the through the Bologna process, and let me just say for the those of, out there who are listening, the Bologna process is this quite extraordinary uh, uh, mechanism that gets going in the 90, late 1990s, 1999, and uh, now if we look at that process in 2000 and uh, 16, there's what, 47 countries that have all signed on to uh, bringing their institutions into a common architecture, three years undergraduate, two years uh, masters and three years doctoral. And while in countries like England that's fairly much how the uh, higher education architecture looked, if you went to Germany or perhaps Slovenia you would have seen that you might have had a five-year undergraduate um, and so on. And the argument essentially was that this was this limited access to higher education because it's if you've got all of your money being spent on a five-year undergraduate, there's only a certain number of students that you could fund into um, undergraduate. Um, and so this was the issue around access and so on. So... The study that uh, the chapter by uh, Charlier and colleagues is is actually looking at the meaning making that uh, begins to develop, the extent to which um, new understandings of higher education at the institutional level uh, begin to emerge, and they make the 
very interesting and somewhat kind of paradoxical point that um, when these instruments, the uh, Bologna, but also some other instruments that help uh, create this European higher education area, get taken to and get inserted into the African region, what you see is, you know, an imposition to some extent in Africa and a greater degree of compliance with these instruments in the African region, in part because Europe is actually funding these. And it's a, a, a kind of uneven development across Europe of the embedding of these uh, social norms and uh, institutionalising these. In part, that unevenness happened because some of the uh, countries across Europe were accession countries and they were required to come into line with a kind of fairly heavy hand around compliance. Other countries um, have been much more reluctant to be Bologna compliant um, and we see this actually, um, high levels of unevenness. Um, so that's a, that's a very nice chapter, you know, using that way of thinking um, about regions that there's a, there's a lot of work that goes into creating new institutions, new identities, new social practices, new ways of doing things, new meaning making and so on. Um, if we went to the chapter that I had something to do with, um, there's a, a very interesting body of work and, and let me just kind of put it here. Um, so if we look at nation states and we say, okay, nation states, they have state structures um, and so on. Now we go up and we look at Europe and we say, oh, but, and then we, it has many of the elements that we might identify as being part of a state project. You know, it's got juridical institutions, you know, so it's the um, European Court of Justice, it's got a parliament. But we tend, we kind of think, oh, a state is actually something that happens at the nation-state space. And we recognise these as part of, you know, a system of nation-states uh, that emerged particularly at the beginning of the 1900s. So some writers like uh, Kanishka Jayasuriya and... Um, Shahar uh, Hamiri, and, and actually I'm, and, and the work that we've been doing in Bristol, we're very interested in the way in which the, the, the idea of the a state, a state that is actually having to keep uh, economic development um, moving along, and it might well find that it has to, you know, move the boundaries of how it works away just from being tucked up neatly inside a nation-state space, but extending outward into what you might call a regional frontier. So now we've still got a state. It's still operating, you know, through legal, um, so juridical or legal instruments, you know, through the, the, the typical political um, arenas that a state operates through and on institutions and so on, but it's shifting its boundaries to enable it to um, its political uh, activity to ensure that uh, particularly capital accumulation or economic development is is happening. And in part, the, the, this kind of theory is actually saying, and this is what we're particularly kind of interested in exploring in relation to Europe, is that. It reflects to some extent the, the, the a crisis of governing, and so the way you try and 
perhaps govern, think of a household, you know, you try and reorganise the way you, in which you might do things in a household by changing a little bit the way in which the rules are set in the household. Um, and again, if we thought of governing a, a, a big kind of country here, um, or sets of countries, what you're trying to do is you're trying to play around with the instruments of governing in order to make sure that you can keep this economic project, you know, um, moving along in ways in which it enables it to be competitive with other economic projects in other parts of the world or economic and political projects in the Latin American region out into the Asian space and so on. So these different chapters, I think, are uh, using these different theoretical resources to really see if we could see some, um, what kind of traction we can actually get on higher, higher education regionalisms. And they're looking at different parts of the globe to see if they can generate some uh, insights. Um, and I think then collectively what that book is really hoping to, to do is open up a conversation around the value of not just different theoretical approaches to regionalisms, but what 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 can we see and what can we see differently when we put a, a different set of lenses on the problem of um, or the 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 wonderful problem um, the 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 issues that we're kind of looking at. So reading the tea leaves, going looking into the future, what what do you make of higher education regionalisms? going forward? Well, I think we can't say that it's going to be an expanding, you know, um, you can already see if you're looking at politics here in the UK, um, there's retractions actually. And I think the conclusion that we could see in the chapter that um, I worked on for the book, um, there's a drawing back in toward a national frontier. Um, and in part, uh, that's uh, that's occurring because there's a sense that some of the promise of operating at the regional level isn't delivering quite what they wanted and so some retraction back in. So I think across different parts of the world there are different speeds at work and there's, and historically we've seen this anyway, there was a burst of regionalisms in the post-war period, Second World War period, and then a kind of retracting back in. And then we've seen a burst of um, regionalisms, and, but, but very different uh, forms of regionalisms. Um, the, the, there are other developments that are taking place, uh, quite a lot of um, big um, interregional negotiations or um, that, that have stood outside the World Trade Organization now that are also trying to build these different kinds of um, collaboration. So the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the uh, uh, Transatlantic uh, Trade and Investment um, Partnership, TTIP, and the other one's called TPP, which um, these are also underway. Um, so maybe you can see a lot of churn at work in the world of which education increasingly now seen not just as um, something that we do to create more enlightened individuals and more reflexive people in the world or advanced research. Um, higher education institutions are being caught up in creating services economies. Now once that happens then it seems to me that there will be a constant kind of set of um, 
politicking and uh, reorganizing to keep these different projects at work. So um, in essence, I think there'll be a lot of movement in these tea leaves. Um, there'll be a lot of churn in these tea leaves as higher education institutions get caught up in the business of um, promoting, um, advancing, you know, political projects in the world. So I think there's... Um, a lot that's going to happen into the future in ways that we can't always predict. Well, Susan Robertson, it's always wonderful to talk. Thank you very much for joining Fresh Ed. I well with you and thank you for the opportunity to have a conversation about these things today. Susan Robertson is a professor of sociology of education in the Graduate School of Education at the University of Bristol. Her newest co-edited volume is entitled Global Regionalisms and Higher Education projects, processes, politics, which will be published later this year. Next week, I speak with Leha Fan about transnational education. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. You can subscribe to Fresh Ed on iTunes and follow the show on Twitter using the handle at Fresh Ed Podcast. The opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and see you next week.